There are benefits to negative experiences. Sorrow tenderizes the heart. Welcome to the Insight Myanmar podcast. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to let you know that we have a lot more written and video content on our website. If you haven't visited it yet, we invite you to take a look at www.insightmyanmar.org. In addition to complete information about all of our past podcasts, there's also a variety of blogs, books, and videos to check out. And you can sign up for our regular newsletter as well. But for now, enjoy what follows, and remember, sharing is caring. Anxiety alerts us to real threat. Negative experiences can increase resilience. Good judgment comes from experience, but experience comes from bad judgment. point is that stress or negative experiences have a number of negative consequences. So, what do we do about this? Happy to welcome Rick Hansen to the Insight Myanmar podcast. Rick, thanks so much for joining us. I feel honestly honored to be able to be here. And I come with deep respect and gratitude for what you're doing, what you are doing, Joa, and also more broadly, what the people of Myanmar are suffering through and grappling with right now, both located inside the you know, geographical borders of the country, as well as in the diaspora of many people who've needed to flee uh, to, you know, escape persecution and atrocities of one kind or another. So serious, serious business. And I feel very glad to be able to offer anything I can. Really appreciate that and look forward to what follows. And to introduce your background a little to our listeners, let me quote a brief bio from your website. You write, Rick Hansen, PhD, is a psychologist, senior fellow of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, and New York Times bestselling author. His books are available in 30 languages, which with over 1 million copies in English alone. He's lectured at NASA, Google, Oxford, and Harvard, taught meditation centers worldwide, and been featured on BBC, CBS, NPR, and other major media. 
So this certainly means we have a lot to discuss today. Uh, before we get into some of the more serious stuff, because our podcast has its roots in examining the meditative traditions connected to Myanmar, which is really what we were prior to the coup, can you share a bit about your background in meditation to our listeners? Hmm. Sure. Well, so I, I went to college 1969 and 1974. You can kind of locate me there for in, in the cultural trajectory of the last 50 years or so. And at the tail end of UCLA, I thought, oh, I'd ought to learn a little bit about Eastern philosophy and religion. And that opened the whole thing for me and introduced me to Buddhism, particularly in uh, its expression in Zen. Uh, so I started doing very simple kinds of zazen with pretty much no idea what in the world I was actually doing. And that still got me on my way. Uh, as the years went by, I, I became affiliated with Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Northern California, pretty close to where I live. And uh, partly because I just started going there with our family and then that drew, drew me in. And, and that led over the last 30 years to, I'd say, a pretty thorough training in the Theravadan expression of Buddhism and a pretty thorough grounding in early Buddhism as it's summarized, as you know, primarily in what's called the Pali Canon, the canon of discourses from the Buddha and some of his contemporaries uh, in the language of early Buddhism, namely Pali. So that's kind of my background. Increasingly, I've been interested in bringing a kind of Mahayana spirit uh, a foregrounding and appreciation of notions of emptiness and uh, sort of the unconditioned ground of all combined with the rigor and the clarity and the precision and the moral foundations uh, that we find in Theravadan Buddhism and in early Buddhism altogether. Mm, thanks for that. That's, that's a great summary. Uh, in your own words, you've described a common theme running through your books as follows, quote, a recurring theme in my work is the need for mental resources such as mindfulness, self-compassion, and positive emotions. We acquire these resources through learning, but there has been remarkably little attention paid to the actual how of growing such inner strengths, end quote. I imagine that when you write this, you might be speaking more about strengthening inner resources within a somewhat stable functioning society, which is far from what we see happening in Myanmar right now, in a place where people are facing unspeakable horror and just trying to survive the day and the night, and it's been over a year now, they are still experiencing such tremendous ongoing trauma that most of the people I know can't even begin to think about processing what they've already faced. And because they're, they're still just trying to get through basic survival and, and all the trauma ahead that has to be uh, waded through to get there. So given this set of conditions, which might be quite different from where you've lived and where you've written for people who are living, would you, are there good mental practices, even under these conditions, that you might be able to suggest to people to, to follow and to carry on? Right. Well, first off, you're absolutely correct to mark a distinction between the applications of most of my work as a as an American psychologist, 
helping people in psychotherapy and also more generally in self-help sorts of ways, human potential sorts of ways through books and classes and teachings. That's really different. My life is full of advantage and privilege and comfort. Uh, and most of the people I have tried to help are also have somewhat similar lives. So yes, that's absolutely different from what people are encountering, certainly in Myanmar and, and actually here in, the, in America. Some people are encountering, are encountering really horrible conditions in my own country. So it's good to acknowledge that distinction. That said, uh, the underlying idea that we deal with the challenges in our life, including extreme challenges of atrocities happening uh, in our village or our family system, we cope with them, we gradually recover from them, and we offer help to others and we try to preserve as best we can in our innermost being a core of well-being along the way. As we do that, we must tap into various strengths inside, psychological resources of various kinds, including uh, mindfulness, compassion, resilience, grit, uh, spiritual practices, emotional intelligence, moral commitments, and so forth. The strengths. We draw on strengths. We must draw on strengths. And the worst, the worse it is, the more we need to draw on the strengths inside ourselves. The more that the world around us is unsupportive, if not horrible, we must draw on the strengths that we have inside us. So there's nothing la-di-da or new age or privileged or American about the whole notion of tapping strengths inside. It's really, really important. Now, in the moment that something terrible is happening, you know, you're absolutely running for your life. Uh, you know, there you are, you're drawing on the strength of fleeing for your life, and there's not much else that's possible. Absolutely, for sure. But if the dust settles just a little bit, and you can catch your breath, literally one breath or two or three, at that point, there's always an opportunity for greater healing and learning and growing. And that's, a, that's an inalienable power that we have in our innermost being to influence who we are becoming. You know, as we come through these terrible conditions, uh, how are we growing and developing along the way, right? So it's not just horrible. It's not just traumatic that there's actually some development along the way. It was the Buddha who taught a long time ago that suffering is the proximal condition uh, for awakening. It actually is a factor of awakening because it moves us in that direction. Uh, I can talk with you a lot about the specific how of developing and using inner strengths of various kinds, like resilience, in a most fundamental way. We could talk more about that for sure. But in the moment, I could maybe offer three things that I think are grounded in science and grounded in how the brain and body work together that people can tap into to deal with just really, really difficult situation. So maybe I'll just name them right here, okay? So the first, of course, is mindfulness, sati in Pali. The capacity to witness your experiences rather than being completely consumed by them, completely swept along and hijacked by them. <sighs> 
you get a little breather. You get a little space, a buffer between you and what's happening right there. Mindfulness, both of what's happening inside you and mindful awareness of what's happening around you is a fundamental strength and inner resource that people can draw on when things are really difficult. A second that I just want to call out is the feeling of heart, that there's a, there's a heartfelt connection between yourself and the world. Um, there are people that you care about. Um, there are people who care about you. Maybe there's a feeling of being connected to nature and culture and the wider world in some way that's meaningful. Uh, your heart is engaged. It's interesting that in French, uh, the root of the word for courage is heart. And we need to tap into our hearts. To be, we need to be strong-hearted to, to deal with things. And in our evolutionary history as hunter-gatherers who lived in close contact with others of their kind, um, feeling connected and also tapping into heartfelt feelings that you're expressing are primal signals of safety. They're, they really shore up our sense of uh, being okay, like a fundamental basic okayness is supported by heartfeltness. So that would be a second one. And then just to finish, a third that's really wild in terms of what's happening in your brain when you do it is to take a wider view, move into more of a bird's eye perspective, more of an objective, impersonal, big picture perspective, even lift your gaze to the horizon, to the to the larger space around you, the room you're in, the, the wider context. As soon as we do that, as soon as we take that wider view, it tends to bring us into the present neurologically, and it tends to relax a certain amount of self-preoccupation, and it helps us see the bigger picture, the vaster frame, in which many, many things are actually going okay. Locally, it may be a complete horror show a complete disaster. But when we lift our gaze to the horizon or to that bird's eye view, it helps us appreciate the larger whole. It helps us appreciate, frankly, dependent origination, you know, interdependence, interbeing, as, as the great Thich Nhat Hanh put it, interbeing. And that is a comfort. That is a comfort in the moment. So right there, mindfulness, heartfeltness, and a wider view are three things that people can do right in the moment, grounded in science, that can help them cope better and potentially even feel better, even in the midst of terrible things. Yeah, those are all really good things to hear and to keep in mind. And I want to present some actual details of the reality of what I know a lot of people are being faced with and what they're struggling with. I think it can be very valuable to match these techniques and guidance with the real gritty reality of the situation. Um, I, I've spoken to many people there who've had lifelong meditation practices that when I ask them in the past year if they're able to practice and how it's able to help, uniformly I get answers back that one is not able to, to sit inside one's mind in any position for even as long as, as a few seconds under a minute the, the the stress and the the trauma and the fear it just overtakes one and one just uh, simply isn't able to rest into any meditation practice. Even in terms of ethical living, there are people I know, Buddhists, that have not really meditated all that much in their life, but they've very, very carefully followed the precepts, the, the five Buddhist precepts. And 
some of them have been put in 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 horrendous situations in which their family or community is suffering from the threat of abduction, terror, even death. And they've had to make the terrible decision to either outright take up arms and join an armed resistance. There are other people I know whose communities and families have come under threat of attack, abduction, torture, terror. And some have either outright joined the armed resistance because they simply don't know what else they can do to preserve life. And others who have supported it in more indirect ways that are a violation to these ethical precepts they followed their entire life. And they these have been extremely traumatic and difficult decisions to have to make. So when I get some of these questions for people that have had a lifelong meditation practice and can't even rest a moment in their own mind now, or people who have been example examples and pillars of some of the greatest nobility I've ever met in my life that are now looking to turn to supporting something they never in a million years thought they would. I, I don't judge, but I also don't know how to help. I've never been through something like that, and I, I don't know what tools can come to support someone in living through these kinds of challenges. I, I don't know if you have counseled people that have gone through this amount of stress and trauma and life danger? And if so, what you've given them, what you've discussed with them? Well, first off, Joa, it's really touching that you're so engaged with this. And I think in that is the beginning of an answer to this incredibly important, even universal question you're asking that transcends uh, Myanmar, it speaks to the horror show of human history, which has looked a lot like Game of Thrones for the last 10,000 years since agriculture started enabling surpluses of food that enabled surpluses of wealth and then surpluses of power to hold on to that wealth. And that's pretty much been the last 10,000 years of human history. So it's just touching, really, that you're engaged here. And I, I bow to you for that. Second, my own background uh, is, I would say, medium knowledgeable about trauma. There are people who are much more engaged in that. And as you know, you and I have had a little bit of back and forth um, in email, I've encouraged, I think, finding people who both have expertise in the neuropsychology of trauma and its treatment and also have a deep grounding culturally, maybe in terms of their own nationality, uh, in situations and in settings in which so many terrible traumas are being perpetrated, those are really the best experts of all. That said, that said, I'll try to take a swing at this. Um, the key, I think, deep down inside uh, is motivation. It's hard to sustain motivation when you're clinically depressed or flooded with PTSD, underfed, fleeing for your life, and flooded with worry and concern for other people. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. That said, as the Buddha taught, uh, to quote the Pali Canon, uh, as he was doing his practices and approaching his own awakening, he said that painful, racking feelings arose in me, but they did not invade my mind and remain. 
And I think that distinction is crucial. What dwells within your heart? What has invaded your mind and occupied it? Like an occupying power, like a military government. And it's important to be really careful about what we let invade our mind. And we have a lot of power there. Yes, I'm a longtime psychologist. Intrusive thoughts, intrusive images, uh, traumatic reactions can still certainly arise. And still, what is our relationship to those? Can we have a relationship of mindfulness to them as an absolute foundation practice and a kind of circuit breaker? Because as soon as we bring mindfulness to bear in our reactions, they are no longer invading us because we have some space between us and them. So that's absolutely fundamental. And I think people can do that. They really can. Also, I think that um, people who are grappling with extremely tough moral choices and are experiencing what sometimes is called moral trauma, in which they a person is traumatized by witnessing the trauma of others, and including traumatized by the sense of helplessness. It, uh, in, in not being able to stop it. And also, uh, a person is, um, you know, let's suppose in terms of moral trauma, maybe feeling a little guilty, like somehow they could have, should have done more, or they're part of the problem altogether. You know, when you're in that kind of situation, you're really grappling with tough moral choices. And I can't suggest to people, you know, which way to go. I do think that a touchstone for all of us is first, to know that you're really doing the best you can. You're just doing the best you can. Make sure you're doing the best you can. But if you're doing the best you can, take refuge in knowing that you're doing the best you can in the extraordinarily difficult circumstances you're in, let's say. And at the end of the day, try to take a wider view. You know, terrible things have happened throughout history, which is not to minimize any one of them. Terrible things have happened. Meanwhile, the world keeps turning. People uh, find ways in different settings to have kind of an okay life. Uh, teachings can continue to proceed. And I want to be clear, I'm not minimizing anything, but I'm just making the point that something that people who have found, who have worked a lot with trauma and have a much deeper experience than my own have found is that it's especially important to be aware of the good that endures, the good that lasts even while, and especially while, we're dealing with a world of bad in our immediate situation. So we've talked a little about the frontline stress and trauma that those on the ground are facing. And I'd like to pivot and look at another set of people who might not be in immediate danger in their work and yet have also not had it easy. These are supporters, allies, advocates who are outside the country and doing what they can from afar. It includes a diverse range of people of Burmese diaspora, former expats, foreign allies. Many of these people have all but stopped their normal lives for the past year to transform their normal patterns and have taken on endless hours and impossible tasks, sometimes dealing with life or death stakes, even if it's not their life, but being uh, impacted by those whose lives are at risk. 
And so even though these people aren't exactly in danger themselves, a mortal danger of their own lives, they have come close to trauma of a number of different kinds that many have never experienced before through their support and advocacy. And for this group of people, I'm wondering what kind of resources or thoughts or guidance you might have. Wow. Um, I mean, you're really talking about a, a extremely important group of people, you know, in kind of more conventional terms, uh, more normal range situations, caregivers, including, for example, people who are uh, the caregiver of a dementing uh beloved and still dementing uh, spouse of 30, 40 years. You know, there's a lot of, lot of difficulty there in that role. Um, certain things strike me that seem generally really helpful and have been found to be helpful in uh, working with trauma and communities of trauma, really. Uh, the first is, no surprise, social support. A sense that there are others who are with you. You stand in common cause. You stand in camaraderie with others who also care deeply about Myanmar, who also perhaps have a shared spiritual practice, who also, uh, whether or not they share your spiritual practice, share your moral commitment and outrage at uh, you know the, the horror show that's being perpetrated. So the, the sense of camaraderie and community, sangha, if you will, uh, is crucially important. Second major finding about what helps us deal with trauma and also uh, be a caregiver or an ally for those who are traumatized is a sense of meaning and purpose. In other words, that there's a larger aim, there's a, a larger value that you're part of, you're, you're nourishing, you're supporting. It doesn't need to be super lofty. It could just be a sense of meaning and purpose in helping in the ways that you can each day, doing what you can each day. That's a sense of meaning and purpose. Or it might for, be for a different person, a sense of enacting their bodhisattva vow that uh, they are committed in this life to the liberation of all beings from suffering, which obviously includes the grosser forms of suffering in prison camps and, and you know, other kinds of terrible situations. So that sense of larger mission and meaning and purpose is a second thing. Third, respite. You, you can't do this stuff 24 hours a day. You need a break. You need to just disengage in whatever's available to you, get a cup of tea, watch a little television, pet your cat, read a story to your kids, step outside, look up at the trees, go to a movie, <laughs> something, anything. People need respite. Uh, humans are strong, tough critters. We can handle a lot of sustained stress, but truly redline stress day after day. It's obviously horrible for someone who's suffering it. And it's also really horrible for a, a caregiver or ally or um, advocate who's just bearing and, and dwelling in all of that pain and suffering 24 hours a day. You need respite. It's really okay to take respite. And then you come out and you keep on going. A fourth thing, and then I'll finish with this one also that has been supported by research, uh, is to, in your own way, 
can be shaped by your culture, but definitely in your own way, having a sense of connection with whatever you want to call it, the universe as a whole, the cosmos, uh, the unconditioned, uh, the the absolute, the non-dual, God, source, the ground, <coughs> some sense of connection um, and feeling rooted in some ways in the infinite uh, is for many, many people a wonderful refuge and wellspring of resilience uh, over the long haul. And I definitely wanted to name it here. So thanks for those answers. And I want to do a similar thing of going from the general guidance to a more specific set of conditions that that are being faced. And uh, I think a lot of allies are probably listening to this. I would venture to say probably more allies and supporters would be listening to this than people actually on the ground, just given the nature of their safety and their lives. And to use myself as a case study for some of the things I've been through this year, I just want to give one anecdote of, of something that happened that really startled me and that I, I think in, in one way or another could be somewhat similar to what other allies are going through. I followed your advice many months ago and decided that I was going to stop working for an afternoon and take a walk in my neighborhood and do uh, look at the sky, breathe and feel, uh, feel my body. And I was doing that for about half hour, 45 minutes. And as I walked by one house, a 14 year old or so boy stepped out of the house and he was all dressed in black. He had a big backpack and I think he was wearing goggles or something. And he, he was looking at it from later on. It was obvious he was just going on his own adventure. He was just a kid that was going to, uh, to, to go into the neighborhood and just have his own fun. But when I saw him come out of that house, I, I literally stopped paralyzed in the street because he was dressed in a similar way to, at that time, what 14 and 15-year-old boys and girls in Myanmar were wearing when they walked on the street in a, a somewhat um, impractical uh, hope of stopping bullets and batons from the police and soldiers killing them openly in the street. And some of our fundraising was going towards, I'm sorry, I'm getting, getting emotional even talking about this. I, uh, some of the they happen and they're, they're um, you know, you can't really think about them or talk about them much to get through the next thing. I'm just remembering my feeling. Um, I, I see him dressed like this and he looks like, he looks like the fundraising that we're doing to try to send protective gear to the Myanmar boys and girls that are being assaulted every day. And I just, I just broke down and cried in the middle of the street. I just I broke down and cried and I didn't know what I was seeing. I didn't, I didn't understand it. I, and, and I was in the middle of the street just crying. And, and it took me about a minute to realize that he was just a boy going on out of his house for an adventure. And because of how he was dressed, I, I, I had this mental breakdown of not knowing where I was or what he was doing because I was so caught up in the images and the advocacy that we were doing. You know, that was trying to actually save lives in, in such a terrible situation. And, um, and it was this kind of, this kind of break of, of not knowing where I was or what was happening. And I think this is, um, you know, I, I think the fact that I'm breaking down now is kind of symbolic of, um, 
of the fact that I can't really think or talk much about these things because I, I, I have so much I have to get through and I don't mean to put myself in any, any position of, 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 um, uh, that, that highlights me as anything special. I mean to put myself as a case study that I think many people listening can identify this story with things that they have gone through and that, you, you you can't really think about the stakes or the emotional impact of what you're doing because if you do, you break down. You know, at at four a.m., I got a call that my friends, my friend who's hiding in the jungle in his twenties, Burmese guy, his mother was just uh, abducted by the military, and through our contacts, we found out that he's terrified. And through our contacts, we found out even worse news that she was taken to a facility that is charged with assaulting people physically until they break information. She has no information to give. This, this is this guy's mother who is, has been taken by the authorities. There's no recourse anywhere and she will be beaten as he's in hiding and there's nothing anyone can do. And these, these are, this just happened hours ago and I, to get through it, I can't feel the pain of of what is actually happening because I won't be what I do if I'm also breaking down. And so for those allies out there like me that have either had moments where they've broken down, like on the street with the kid walking to the house, or other moments where they're dealing with things day after day that they don't they didn't think they'd ever have to deal with, but they can only deal with them by not really accepting the deeper part of what they're doing to be able to function. Um, what, um, and, and in this case of walking outside, I was following the advice of letting go and, and, and doing something good for myself away from the crisis and the crisis followed me. So, you know, I know there's a lot of allies around the world diaspora and foreign that are really suffering with this trauma, even though their lives are not at risk. And we do have a privilege of safety that those don't have, but we also carry that emotional trauma. So I don't know what your thoughts are about all of that. Well, Joe, so much in all that. And first and foremost, you're a person, you're, you're a human, you're, you're, you have a tender heart, you're morally committed, you're you know, carrying a suffering. Uh, compassion means to suffer with, right? We, we feel it. And uh, so I, I appreciate you and I, I feel for you. And, and through you, uh, as you make it clear, you're not unique, far from it. And, and there are many, many, many other people who are, who are facing similar feelings and similar kinds of issues. Of course, I know as you recognize, it's still important to do those things, uh, make a meal for yourself, uh, try to get some sleep, uh, have other things in your life besides your work, your, you know, your political work, your, your work for social justice, your, your compassion service. You don't have other things as well in your life. That's still true, even if occasionally uh, you might walk down a street and be triggered uh, by something um, back into, you know, let's say, some traumatic memories you might have or, or feelings. It's still worth doing those things, those forms of self-care, in part because they're a service to others. As you fuel yourself along the way, you're more able, and we are more able, to sustain the motherhood of social justice work, broadly stated. So that's clearly true. I think it's also true, and I say this not as someone who's ever had to deal with this 
directly in the ways that you have. So I want to be clear. I'm not trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm offering what I'm saying here diffidently. I think what I'm about to say, though, is supported by people who've uh, done a lot of frontline work, like you're engaged with right now, that it's, it's really important to do what you can to not have this invade your life and, con- and, and consume it for the sake of those you're trying to help. Because when people get invaded and consumed, even under the best of intentions, by their empathy for the suffering of others and their, their, their preoccupation, understandably, with the terror that other people are, are facing and feeling, if people get invaded by that and consumed by that, they tend to burn out. It's really hard to sustain effort over time. And so then we find that balance somehow, a classic teaching in the Buddhist tradition, the balance of compassion and equanimity. Uh, we must find those sources of equanimity for the sake of sustaining our compassion. And of course, compassion warms up equanimity, which might otherwise seem too cool, too calm, too untroubled. So it's really important to to really find find that balance, and then we strike it morally. You know, when do we just take those three hours at, uh, for a walk? Let's say that you know you could spend those three hours mobilizing petition signers or, you know, or doing, you know, raising money in some way or doing some other kind of thing. And yet, you know, to be able to stay the course, you just need to take those three hours out, uh, you know, for your own well-being. And you make that choice. So, you know, making those choices, striking those bargains is, is of course, a matter of personal priorities and, and, your own, and your own personal wisdom about how to do that. But the underlying principle is really fundamental. Without some equanimity, it's really, really hard to sustain compassionate action over any kind of long period. So thanks for that. I think that one of the challenges that many activists and allies have is that there are so few people left outside of Myanmar who are really caring and supporting this issue that those that have decided to engage, I don't really know anyone that's done it halfway. I don't know anyone that knows how to do it halfway. It's been pretty on or off and black and white of what I've seen of both the diaspora as well as the foreign allies. And so once someone decides to step in a little bit, the, the intensity of evil, the, uh, the overwhelming suffering and need that's there, it has been very challenging for everyone I know to maintain a mental balance and a physical balance of activities over the course of so long when the stakes are so high and there's so few other people that are doing anything. And so I think this kind of burden is something that everyone who's chosen to advocate and support on behalf of the Burmese people right now, I think in one way or another, whether it's the examples I gave or veers more towards depression or anger or lack of sleep or whatever anyone else happens to face, whatever specific examples, I think that that so many of us right now outside the country whose lives are safe are, and I know this from the conversation I'm, the conversations I'm having, are, are dealing with this trauma and burden that is has no end in sight. And, uh, and so I think everyone is just doing the best that we can, but it's, uh, it, it, it's hard. I, I, 
there's not really a question there. It's more of a um, an observation. Well, maybe I could turn a question to you, Joe. When I think about this sort of things, I, I think about the great Thich Nhat Hanh, for example, and someone who certainly was very aware of um, horrors in, in the Vietnam War and has been a relentless advocate for peace. I mean, can you draw on teachings uh, from people like Thich Nhat Hanh uh, about how to sustain both advocacy and activism uh, for social justice, including for the people of Myanmar, while also can, maintaining a spiritual practice and preserving a core of well-being inside. I mean, can you turn to teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh for comfort and wisdom? Yeah, I think that's the goal. That's the goal for, for all of us that we strive for. I think people's social justice background and spiritual background differ according to their path, but I think that's what everyone is trying to do. Uh, of course, the trauma and the intensity and the stories are such that one breaks down and picks oneself back again and, and tries again and, and tries to learn from it and tries to stay affirmed and committed to this path while also looking after oneself and whatever that kind of spiritual practice is. And, and that connects to the last question I want to ask. I, I want to it's interesting because I, I see through your writings that you have hit upon a word resilience that comes up quite a bit. This is also a word that has become kind of an emblem of this past year. It's a bit of a controversial word, actually, in the Myanmar context. Some some have felt that resilience is a very powerful, defining word of what the Myanmar people have gone through. Others have expressed the word as being actually somewhat triggering because it's kind of a positive spin on a world forgetting and turning their back on a people that are suffering so they have nothing left to do but be resilient and that the word kind of covers up the shame of how they've been left alone to fend for themselves and sometimes be judged while doing it. And so there is this kind of divide of what resilience means and the context of it and the application and how it defines the Burmese people now. And with that context in mind, and with the fact that this has also been something in your spiritual teachings that you have taught, what can you say about the power of resilience now in this context? Right. I definitely understand the critique, and I think it's an interesting one, and I get it. To use an analogy, someone might say, well, if it's true, and it probably is not true in many places, well, at least the people of Myanmar have access to water. Now, someone could say, well, you're using that statement as a way to shift the attention away from what they do not have, and in fact, away from all the ways that they're being mistreated with this sort of face-saving bit that, oh, well, at least they have water. That's a legitimate critique. On the other hand, it's good to have water right? It's good to have water. It's good to have resilience. Resilience is a simple psychological characteristic that people can have more or less of, and it certainly helps people uh, individually uh, cope and function with terrible situations and to protect kind of a fundamental core of well-being inside along the way. And you can think of countries or com and communities uh, um, and organizations too that are more or less resilient 
in terms of their capacity to manage challenges without being destroyed by them. So resilience is a good thing. Resilience is a good thing. It's not good, of course, to uh, you know wave one's hand at a whole country full of people who are being terribly treated and to say, well, you all are really resilient. Now I no longer need to pay any attention to you. Now I am just going to wander off to my comfortable upper middle class you know, life in America or other major developed countries of the world, uh, wealthy countries of the world. Uh, you know, that's not a good thing. Obviously, that's not a good thing. But just because that's not a good thing does not itself mean that water is not good or that resilience is not good. Well, I thank you for that. I thank you for sharing these thoughts on such a serious matter that so many people are going through and for taking your your time today to share your good wishes and your insights from your past experience and teachings. Joe, it's the least I could do. And major bows to you and your and your colleagues, your allies, and all those who are doing the best they can, really, uh, for the people of Myanmar. We'd like to take this time to thank our generous supporters who have already given. We simply cannot continue to provide you with this content and information without the wonderful support of generous listeners, donors, and friends like you. Each episode helps in providing access to one more voice, one more perspective, one more insight. Every donation of any size is greatly appreciated, and it helps us to continue this mission. We greatly appreciate your generosity, which allows us to maintain this platform and everything else we do. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give it another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.